If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. If you are new with us, we always give out Bibles, so please raise your hand. Feel free to borrow or preferably keep these Bibles. We want you to read them. So, if you've been with us at all, you'll hear me f- say frequently, I didn't grow up in a Bible-preaching church, so it was weird to me. It was unusual. Like, everyone brought their Bible, and they would turn, and I'm like, I don't even know how to find that. There's a table of contents. So, don't feel like a stranger. We have people that frequently come into our service and will say, as they hear one of us preaching, wow, I learned more today than in a lifetime. Not because we are extraordinary, but because we're teaching the Bible, and a lot of churches aren't doing that anymore. And the reason we're teaching the Bible is because we are convinced that this is the Word of God. And I want you to think about that. We believe that this is just as though God was coming down here and speaking to us. And so that this book holds a strong authority. If the Bible is what it claims to be, then if I disbelieve the Bible or I disobey the Bible, then I'm disbelieving and disobeying God. So, with that in mind, it really helps us to understand what Paul was experiencing because he, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, did not have a New Testament like we have. So, he had been given oral messages from Christ to take the gospel and go build healthy churches. But one of the issues that he was experiencing that sometimes pastors experience as well is the Corinthians were pushing back and saying, who gives you the right to tell me what to do? I was trying to think of an illustration of this. I, I was thinking maybe if I was in a service sometime and some teenagers were carrying on and they didn't know I was the pastor or a pastor here and I came up behind them and said, hey, um, could you guys knock that off? And suppose, suppose they said, you're not my dad. You can't tell me what to do. You're not my dad. So imagine that these Corinthians, after Paul had left, had become persuaded that Maybe we don't have to listen to Paul. I mean, who gives him the right to tell us what we can and can't do? Because Paul was wading into new territory. They weren't, they weren't questioning whether they could lie or steal. We have the Ten Commandments. What they were questioning is, could we still eat in the idols' temples? And we saw last week the Apostle Paul said, no, I do not want you to eat in the idols' temples anymore. And they pushed back and said, why not? We have knowledge. We know there's no idols. And besides, God doesn't care what food you eat. So Paul takes a turn in, in his argument to kind of approach it from a different angle, to answer the question, what gives you the right to tell us what to do? So this chapter is really going to be a defense of Paul's authority, his apostleship. He's going to try to prove that he's an apostle. But in doing so, one of the things that he's going to pick up on is why they were claiming he's not an apostle. Why would somebody say, Paul, Paul's not an apostle? And one of the reasons that they were saying this is, believe it or not, because he didn't charge them. Isn't that weird? He can't be an apostle because he comes here and teaches us and speaks for us, and he does it for free. He can't be an apostle. I mean, talk about the ultimate of you get what you pay for. In other words, the fact that he doesn't ask us for a penny must indicate that he realizes he's a poser. And and the irony is there were people 
had come into the church who were calling themselves apostles, and they were charging top dollar. In fact, I was talking to somebody one day, and they said, yeah, yeah, I got a wedding coming up. And they didn't know I was a pastor, but they said, yeah, I found somebody online. They're going to do my wedding for $1,000. I said, what? Oh, yeah, this guy's got this thing online. He'll come and do your wedding for 1000 Just show up for an hour for $1,000. So. <laughs> let's begin in verse 1, where Paul, Paul has told them, so I want you to stop doing this. And the implication is, I'm an apostle. So now the first three verses, he's going to say, all right, I guess I'm going to have to defend my apostleship. So, Lord, may you give us gospel glasses, open our eyes to the Holy Spirit, and let your word accomplish its authoritative work. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul says, am I not free? Now, free here will imply that I don't have anybody telling me what to do. Not free from the law, not free from sin. But here, I'm not obligated to anybody here. Am I not an apostle? In other words, there, the implication is you're not an apostle. He goes, I'm not? Well, let me ask you some rhetorical questions. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now, that's important. One of the qualifications in the New Testament to be an apostle is you had to see the risen Christ. In Acts chapter 1, when um, they were replacing Judas, they said, we have to have someone who's been a witness of his resurrection. That's why today, if, if you go over to, to the inner city, some of the inner cities, you'll see on every other billboard, yeah, this apostle so-and-so is at this church. I'm going, wait a minute. One of the qualifications of an apostle is you have to see the risen Lord. And Paul goes, I saw him. Now, he didn't see him the same way the others did. He saw him on the road to Damascus. And he says, and by the way, just... I'm not an apostle. Are you not my work in the Lord? He's like, look around at one another. This church that you're in, this fellowship, he's going, God used me as an apostle to start this church. He said, so even if to others I'm not an apostle, which the hint is these other people in your fellowship who have come in and saying, you don't have to listen to Paul, he's not an apostle. Even if they tell you that, at least I am to you. And they're going, why? He goes, look what he says. You're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. What more evidence do you need that when I spoke the gospel to you, the Holy Spirit opened your eyes, you came to life and were converted to Christ? It, it, he's kind of like, is it me? Like, how could you possibly not see the evident authenticity of my apostleship? But then he says this, all right, I get it. So here you go. My defense to those who examine me is this. You still don't think I'm an apostle? All right, let me, let me come to the pulpit and explain why I am. Now, what I would have expected is that he would give a list of all of his great accomplishments to prove he's an apostle. But instead, now, now follow the logic here. He, he, he comes down this road. He goes, let me prove I'm an apostle. I have a right to get paid. And you're going, is it me? Or what, what does that have to do with being an apostle? In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he, he, he's bringing out this idea. He goes to them, did I commit a sin when I humbled myself because I preached the gospel to you without charge? In other words, did I sin against you? In 2 Corinthians 12, he said this, in what way did I treat you as inferior to other churches? 
because I didn't burden you by, by collecting money from you. So let's, let's look at his defense, verse 4. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? And what he means by that, to have you provide me with food and drink. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord, wonder which brothers, and Cephas? So what we learn here is that at least some of the apostles, like Peter, when they traveled to do itinerant church planning, they brought their wives with them. In fact, I heard one wag say that Peter's wife was named Annette because it says he cast a net into the sea. But we know, we know that's, no, I'm just kidding. And that's not advocating, just a little light humor. So, but, but think about this. It is, it is kind of, it kind of gives some flavor, like when you're watching the, the chosen and you have to be discerning, make sure this is what the Bible teaches. But to think of these guys traveling around with their wives, right? But Paul goes, I didn't do that. But I have a right to. Verse 6, or do only Barnabas and I have a right to refrain from working? So then he says, I mean, think about it. It's common sense. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the fruit of it? Who tends a flock and doesn't use the milk of the flock? So all he's saying here is, listen, I should and could easily expect you to support me. And then he says, and by the way, I'm not just using human logic. Look at verse 8. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Doesn't the law also say these things? So there's more authority when you're talking to someone and they go, here's what I think, versus, yeah, well, here's what the Bible says. So just in case somebody said, well, thanks for the cool analogies of farmers and soldiers, Paul, getting paid. And he goes, all right, how about this? I'll tell you what the Bible says. He says, think about that old Testament passage. It is written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. Yeah? What's that have to do with getting support? Paul says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Now, technically, yeah, he is, right? That's why he made that law. In fact, if you have pets, whether or not you're, you're at the level of Jeremy, they, they stand and talk to you. Um, the Bible says wise men should regard the life of their beasts. So it's not as though he's saying God could care less about oxen, but Paul sees in this a deeper element. So he says this, isn't God speaking for your sake? For our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? Now, it seems like he's really being excessive. Okay, Paul, we get it. We should be paying you. And he's, and he's going, that's not my point. My point is, I could ask you to pay me. Verse 12, if others share the right over you, do we not more so? In other words, if you give money to these false apostles who have come in and taken over your church, shouldn't I get a, a, a top salary check? But here's the key, verse 12, nevertheless, we did not use this right. Now remember, he has asked the Corinthians in chapter 8, give up the right to go to eat meat in the temple. He goes, 
I've given up a right, a very significant right. You go, oh, big deal, so you didn't get paid by the Corinthians. Well, instead, look what he says. We endure all things. Now, that word endure has to do with, with bearing hardship. And somewhere in Paul's ministry, this is pretty interesting, early on in Paul's ministry, he did accept financial support from churches. But somewhere along the line, he noted something, and that was this, that there were people out there who were using church as a way to make money. You're like, do people do that? Do you not watch TV? Do you not watch those guys on television? No matter what they're talking about, within five minutes, they're making a beeline for your pocketbook and telling you, you want to get blessed, write me a check. So the Bible says that in 1 Timothy 6. Men will use godliness as a means of gain. So early on, Paul picked this up. He goes, you know what? I see a lot of people, they're, they're not doing this for Christ. They're doing this to make money. And I'm going to be lumped in with them. I'm just going to be considered one of these other shysters. And so he says, I have an idea. This is what I'm going to do. Even though I could ask you to pay for, for, for me, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to work the night shift. And so frequently in the Bible, he'll say, I worked night and day with my hands, sweating it out so that I didn't be, provide a burden to you and so that no one could accuse me of trying to make money off of you. Now, that's pretty staggering to, 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 to be, some people call it a tent making, you know, like a dual ministry of saying, I don't want to get paid by the church. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to earn my own living by working two jobs. And he said, I did that on purpose. And he's not saying everyone has to do that. He's saying he did that. So, let's keep reading. He says, the reason I did that, verse 12, is to cause no hindrance to the gospel. Now, that's important. That word hindrance is a word that means to hold back the progress. In other words, if the gospel progress is slowing because of something I'm doing, I'm not doing that anymore because I want the gospel to spread rapidly. And part of the reason why is in that culture, they had a concept of what was called patronage. Patronage. Wealthy people would give money to certain patrons on a regular basis. They would give them a stipend. But they had certain expectations of those patrons when it came to civic gatherings, voting for them, granting them favors if they, if they need to get some land, you know, rigging the system. So people do this. You know, they manipulate. And, and, and lots of people are like, yeah, 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 give me the money. I'll do whatever you want. Yep, yep, yep. Rob, Peter, pay Paul. I'll vote for you every time, right? So um, Paul, was, he's going, I'm not going to be a patron to anybody. I'm not going to have somebody give me money and then loop around later and say, hey, man, I need you to back off. I know I'm doing something wrong, but back off. After all, I gave you money. And secondly, the second reason was, he goes, all those guys over there who are saying, we're apostles just like Paul is. We're apostles just like he is. And he goes, you're not apostles. Prove you're an apostle. Do it for nothing. You're not an apostle. You don't even suffer. Look how I suffer. So he's got a reason why he won't accept pay from them. Then in verse 14, or 13, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share with the altar? So if you remember the Old Testament, 
when, when the priests made the showbread every day, right? God had appointed to them to be able to eat of the showbread. When people brought sacrifices, part of those sacrifices, the priests were entitled to eat them. So Paul's going, doesn't the Old Testament point out that those who are in the Lord's work can receive support? Look at verse 14. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. I want you to maybe write down next to this verse. This is what we call full-time ministry. Full-time ministry. I think we need to think about what does it mean to be in ministry? Every Christian is in ministry. There's no such thing as a Christian not being ministered. So technically, if somebody came in the door and said, who's the ministers here? We would say, all of us. Ephesians 4 says, pastors equip the saints for the work of ministry. We're all ministers. However, some people, in order to devote the amount of time that it takes to do these things, are supported full-time, okay? Doesn't make them better. There shouldn't be this idea of, clergy, they're the holy ones, and lay people, we get paid to be good, you're good for nothing. I mean, good for nothing. No, that's not what I mean. So, you, you get it. So, Paul goes, look, it is a biblical principle that those who preach the gospel can get their living from the gospel. So, and it doesn't just mean pastors. I mean, I think sometimes people who teach in Christian schools, if you look at the salary that they make compared to the salary that people make in public schools, you're thinking, wow, they're they're sort of in, in, in ministry in a different way. So, you know, it, it, I remember a friend of mine saying, I was a little annoyed at my brother-in-law because this is years ago, you don't know him. He says he wouldn't help uh, his, his parents because he was too busy because he says to, to my buddy who's a pastor, you know, we're both in ministry. So I, I just don't have time to go over and shovel my parents' sidewalk because we're in ministry. So what does he do? He manages a Christian bookstore, right? But he, didn't have, he doesn't have time to shovel his parents' sidewalk. And, and, and I would perhaps probably say to all pastors, even if you're preaching and teaching, if you don't have time to shovel your parents' sidewalk, you need to figure that out. Now, my buddy was nine hours away. That's a little bit of a different scenario. So just, just keep that in mind. So Paul says, so I have this right, but look at verse 15. But I haven't used this right. And I'm not writing these things so it may be done so in my case. And you're like, okay, Paul, I got you. They were reaching for their checkbook. What do you need? And he goes, I don't want anything. Then, then he goes off the deep end. He goes, I'd rather die than get paid by you. And you're like, whoa, that seems excessive. That seems a little extreme. Where's that coming from? Look what he says. He says, it would be better for me to die than have anyone make my boast an empty one. Now, what do you mean by boast here? I thought boasting is wrong. Some type of boasting is wrong. Prideful boasting is wrong. But boasting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, God forbid that I boast in anything but the cross, and boasting in what God is doing through a person for God's glory is not inappropriate. So, Paul's boast was that by God's grace, he was denying himself the right of support so that he could glory in the cross and advance the gospel because nobody could say, he's just doing it for the money. In fact, verse 17 says this, if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. 
But if I do it against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. It's important to understand. Every Christian, a stewardship is when God entrusts you with something and he says, I want you to manage this and we're going to talk about it when I come back. The Bible says we have all been entrusted with the gospel. Right? Remember that parable about the guy who goes, I buried my talent. The master didn't go, oh, that was a good idea. So think about this. We've all been entrusted with the gospel. And one day we're going to stand before God. He's going to say, so what would you do with that gospel? Did you share it? Did you live it? Did you prioritize it? Did you pray towards it? Did you give anything? Because I want to save you from embarrassment. If you think that when you stand before Christ, you'll just say, well, I never told anybody. I just witnessed by my life. He will not be pleased with you. The Bible says, as we have been entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. God has given us this privilege to share the gospel. Now, don't be fearful. He's not saying, go down to the train tracks and beat people with the Bible. But, but when I come to the application, we'll, we'll talk about this. He says, so my reward is this. If I do it against my will, it's a stewardship. My reward is this, that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So what he's basically going to say here is, I've given up my right to be supported for two reasons. So that I could receive a special reward and so that I could reap souls. Okay? But the context here is, I am an apostle. You thought I'm not an apostle because I don't want money. Now let me tell you why I don't want money. I don't want money because God will give me a reward for doing it freely. And number two, because my primary purpose is to reap souls. And verses 19 through 23, where we'll wind down here, are incredibly important. And, 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 and it saddens me and it grieves me that there are so many Christians who the gospel, you don't have to have the gift of an evangelist to make the gospel a priority in your life. The gospel is not supposed to be a priority just to a select inner group of Navy SEAL Christians whose job is to share the gospel. Every Christian has the privilege, the obligation to share the gospel, to make the advancement of the gospel your number one priority on planet Earth. And I love how Paul does this. He says, look, though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. Now, he's going to use this phrase, win, win, win. And, and in the Southern Baptist Church, they, they started calling it soul winning. We're going to go soul winning, right? Tuesday night, we're all going to show up in the church and we're going to knock on doors and we're going to go soul winning. Sometimes that's given a pejorative. And, and frankly, I don't think it's all that effective to knock on doors to do soul winning. I'll just say that. But the idea of wanting to win souls to Christ, I could weep if somehow all of us could grab that passion. Jesus Christ, when he came to this earth, he said, I came to seek and to save the lost. One day when they found him praying in a lonely place, Peter says, come on, man, the crowds are looking for you. He goes, I must come and go preach elsewhere for that is what I came for. We are here during this short time on planet Earth. 
to see as many people saved as we can from a human standpoint and from the sovereignty of God's standpoint to bring the last chosen elect fish into the net. And the only reason Jesus Christ has not returned is the Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but he's patient. He's longing for us to advance the gospel. And in American culture, it's grievous how much we've lost our way because we're so comfortable and there's so many things that distract us. So Paul says, listen, here's how I live my life. I am intentionally redemptive in every relationship. And I want you to think about this. Every single person you know, whether it's a friend, family member, a stranger, the guy at the gas station, is either saved or not saved. They're either going to heaven or they're going to hell. And Paul says, I recognize no man according to the flesh. So I don't care whether it's President Biden or the trash man. The one passion of his heart is, does this person know Christ? And how can I have a part in seeing that person come to Christ? I mean, I find people sometimes as Christians going, I don't even share with my family. I'm going, are you mad? Are you insane? You don't even try to share the gospel with your family? Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe they're going to perish without Christ? So Paul shows us that he's very adaptable. He will not compromise moral absolutes, but he will certainly be redemptive in his relationship. So he says, to the Jews, I became a Jew that I might win Jews. So he's like, hey, if it'll help me to win Jews, I won't eat pork, I'll eat kosher. To those under the law, I can be under the law. I can, I can offer sacrifices. I can cut my hair and keep Jewish vows because I want to win them. To those without the laws, without the law, though not being without the law of God. So he's not like, I don't go to wild parties, smoke weed, dance on the bar and go crazy. But he goes, I can be around irreligious people and still be under the law of Christ that I might win them. He says, to these weak people, I became weak. And probably here it would be the poor and the down and out, not, not the weak of conscience. Now look what he says. I have become all things to all men that I may by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel that I might do what? That I might be a partaker of it. So let me ask you a question. Is Paul weird? Is Paul a fanatic? Is Paul somehow this odd individual who's like way over the top with the gospel? Or is Paul God's human example of how he wants us to be? Did Paul not say, follow me as I follow Jesus Christ? So as we close, it's, it's, it's my passion, my desire that, that we really think about the implications of this. So let me give you a couple things to think about and, and we'll pray about it. Remember this expression, it's not whether you win or lose, right? That's true in sports, but in this respect, it's not true. As a matter of fact, it's actually both. You say, hit me. Number one, you have to be willing to lose in order to win. Lose what? Certain rights. You have to be willing to make sacrifices in order to win souls. It does not happen by osmosis. So when you get tickets to a ball game, sure, you could go with your best Christian buddy, but what would it look like to invite an unbeliever? 
Sure, you could have your fellowship dinners with your favorite Christian friends, but what would it, what would it cost me to invite my neighbors? It's not whether we win or lose. It is. In fact, Paul says, look, I have these rights, but I'll give up any rights. He looks at every person. I'm their servant in order to win them to Christ. I mean, what a mindset. This is the mindset that Jesus Christ had. He came down to earth. He's Lord of all, but he didn't regard that anything to, to, to hold on to, but he humbled himself. He emptied himself, and his passion was to come and seek and serve to see people saved and to give his life on the cross. And he's looking for others to say, here's my hands and feet, Jesus. Step in and start doing that through me. This is, this is not something we conjure up like, come on, we can do it. As we yield to the Holy Spirit, this is the passion of the Lord that we have the affections of Christ for lost people. So Paul says, I'm free for all, but Christians live like it's a free for all. Just go do what you want. It's not a free for all. We have one singular purpose, primarily to win the lost. So with that, with that being the case, let me ask you this question. If Paul says, look, I made these sacrifices, how will you adjust your life to prioritize the winning of the lost? Okay. Please don't walk out of here going, that was interesting. But what are you going to do about it? So let me give you some suggestions. The first thing is praying. If you don't pray for the lost people of this world, I kind of have to wonder if you really care. 1 Timothy 2.1 says, I urge you, I beg you to pray for all men because God desires all men to be saved. God has chosen that the primary means that he will save the lost is through the prayers of his people. And I want to beg you to pray for me and anybody else who preaches in the pulpit. We don't want this church to be the only place that people come to Christ. We don't want you to settle for, we just bring our friends to Christ by bringing them to church. But, but we do want that as well. That's one small piece in the evangelism of the world. And Paul was unashamed to say, pray for me. Pray for me that when I open my mouth, Colossians 4, he said, pray that I'll make it clear. Pray that I'll have opportunities. Pray that God will speak through me and that the word of God will bear fruit. Please pray that whoever's preaching up here, including me, that God's Holy Spirit will fall on us in a special way. Acts chapter 4 says they gathered and prayed and with great power the apostles bear witness of the resurrection. Sometimes someone will say to me, man, Tom, you were on fire. Let the, just pray that it will be the Spirit the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray that during the week. God, bring sinners to Christ. And then pray for individuals. The FBI has a 10 most wanted list. Do you have anybody that you're regularly praying for? Hopefully your kids by name, you're begging God night and day, save their precious little souls. But then do you have a friend, a neighbor, earnestly pray to the Father? He has chosen to use prayer. Secondly, how about giving? In what way do you give towards the advancement of the gospel? Not just, well, when Campus Crusade comes here and does the Jesus film, that's important. But think of your giving to the Lord. It's not going to Austin getting a, a, a new 
Tesla. It, 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 it's, it's for the advancement of the gospel, right? It, it's because not just in this building, but throughout the world. And some of you are so generous. And, and thank God, I'm so grateful for your generosity. And I'm thankful that we pastors, we don't know who gives what. And we don't want to know that. But think of your giving as advancing the gospel. And then third, how about this? Being willing to get some training, right? Like, it troubles me when Christians go, well, I don't know how to share the gospel. That doesn't trouble me. But when they go, I don't know how to share the gospel. And then two years later, they say, I don't know how to share the gospel. Fool me the first time. But if two years later, you don't know how to share the gospel, that's your fault. Because you are not seeking to get any training. Okay? We will provide you with training. Okay? But we don't know who wants training. Jesus said to his disciples, you stick with me, boys, follow me, and I'll, and I'll make you fishers of men. He would take them along. He would give them opportunities. We will provide you with training. But I want you to imagine today, if, because if, I always tell people when I train them, ask permission. Don't just start preaching. Just ask permission. Could I take a Bible and share with you how you could go to heaven? What if they said yes? Could you take a Bible and explain the gospel, giving the information of the death, burial, resurrection of Christ and our sinfulness and our lost condition and the sufficiency of the cross and then an invitation, a clear invitation not to ask Jesus in your heart, but to repent and to put your faith and trust in Christ in a meaningful way that a person can clearly hear the word of God and be brought into a faith relationship with Christ. You could do that, folks. God doesn't need, you know, Billy Grahams. He just needs people who are willing to share the gospel in their own shy and quiet way. For years when I used to share it, I had a little note, little note in my Bible just to walk me, to remind me through, okay? You don't have to, it doesn't have to be like, you have to do it all from memory. But pray that God will, will give you training. And then also, how about being willing to have redemptive relationships? Who are you passionately pursuing? I can, and it's, this isn't a testimony, but I have people in my life who are not saved that I regularly do stuff with for that sole purpose, that God would give me an opportunity to win them to Christ. Would to God that every one of our people, imagine what happens when the people of God fueled by the Holy Spirit, are out there in their work, in their, in their neighborhoods going, I want to win people to Christ. I will become a servant to all. I will coach this sport so I can meet these people. No matter what you like. You like racing? Get in a racing club to win souls. You like fishing? Get in a fishing club. Sewing club. Doesn't matter. Uh, Pokemon club. Whatever it is. Get in there with people, with the goal of sharing Christ and with prayer that God will, will use us in that way. It's exciting. Amen? It's exciting. Can you imagine? And I believe that, that God pours out powerful visitations of the Spirit as we pray together. But this is not old-fashioned, wild, enthusiastic Christianity. This is heart and soul. When I walk out of here, what's my week going to look like? Can I squeeze in anything for unbelievers? Can I squeeze in any prayer or can I reprioritize my life to say, 
The passion of God is to advance the kingdom of God. Now, understand that this is one side of a two-edged sword. It's not simply to go, we got 12 more soul scalps, right? We always talk about discipleship here. In fact, the easy part is getting them in the boat. Catching them is a lot easier than cleaning them, isn't it? Because once they come to Christ, then we realize, wow, they've got lots of problems, right? And that's why God has given the variety of gifts of the Spirit. And all of us have different passions. Some of you have a passion for discipling more than winning souls. But please, make the winning of the lost a great priority. What, what might God want to do here as we make this a priority, as we seek His face? We don't need to come up with some slick and clever program where we give a free TV to whoever wins the most souls. Because God says in the book of Zechariah, I do my work not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. So what, what will it look like as, as we move forward, a prayerful community of people seeking to love one another? As Paul said, whether I come and see you or I am absent, that I may hear about you Philippians, that you're standing firm with one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. What does that look like? Imagine, imagine soldiers in the trenches. General, I don't like him. He's, he's, he's not doing it the way I do it. It's like, think big picture. Jesus, our Lord, has bought us with his blood to win the lost and make disciples. I'm really excited and, and pray that you'll, you'll join me, that we might share this burden together. This has to come from the Lord Jesus. Amen? It cannot come from the flesh. So would you close in prayer with me? And for those of you who have not yet joined the gospel team, for those of you who, for whatever reason, have not given your life to Christ, what on planet earth are you waiting for? The lake of fire? Today, give your life to Christ. Don't be a fool. While the Lord's speaking to you, right there in your seat, say, Lord, and if you have become saved, why in the world aren't you getting baptized? The pool, you sh people should be jumping in like fish. If you're a convert, may the Spirit of God awaken you to say, I want to stand publicly and testify of what Christ has done. Let's pray. Thank you so much, dear Father. Your word, it brings life. It brings Jesus into our midst. For your words are spirit in their life. Thank you for Paul's vision and passion to win the loss. Father, we don't need one single program. We just need power. We need prayer. Forgive us when we lose our way. Father, I pray for every parent in this assembly that they might make the salvation of their children a huge priority of prayer. I pray for every grandparent that we can do all that we can to point our grandkids to Christ. And Lord, in this broken, fallen world where people don't know up from down, they don't know whether they're coming or going, they don't even know whether they're a man or a woman, may we hold forth the word of life in the midst of this crooked and perverse world. Thank you for rescuing us. And Lord, thank you for entrusting us with the gospel. So we surrender our hands and feet, our minds and our gifts to you this morning. We pray that this church might become a great mission center, not only that we might win people in this area, but that we might send 
people all over the world to win the lost. Thank you, Jesus, that you love this world more than we ever will. May we become useful vessels, the hands and feet of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen.